morning and greetings in the name of Christ. It is indeed a blessing and a privilege to be back at home here again and to fellowship with you. We were here uh, a while ago the other, the other week, but uh, didn't see any of you at, uh, because it wasn't over Sunday that we were here then for a little bit of time. We're still in the book of First Peter, and we're looking at two verses this morning. Before we, we do that, I'd like to have a little bit of an object lesson with the children, an obvious object lesson. Jesus uh, talks about we are the light of the world. He says that in Matthew chapter 5. And that uh, we're supposed to shine as lights in the world. <clears throat> um, Jesus also says that he is the light. He is the light of the world. So, putting these two things together, we would understand then that Jesus is the light and the light that we are, are the light that he gives to us of himself. Christians don't generate their own light. The light that we have, thank you, comes from the light, the source of light. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, children, I'm going to show you some something that is obvious. I want you to help me with this a little bit. We're going to... We're going to use a light here. Let me just do this right. Okay. Let's do it this way. I know it's not very bright. If this room, total room would be total darkness, of course, then you'd be able to see the light a lot better. Let's pretend that this room is dark. It's night. Everything is closed up. It's dark. You'd be able to see this light, wouldn't you? You'd be able to see that light. Okay. Um, now, we see that this light is us. Okay. This is what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a light. Now, what if I do this? Can you see the light? No. What did Jesus say in Matthew? He said, a city that is set on a hill, you can't hide it. And if you're going to put the light under a bushel or under something, that's not what you do. That's not what, that's not what light is about, right? The light isn't helpful if we're going to cover it. Well, Okay, uh, then I'm then I'm going to do this. Can you see the light? Can you see it well? Now, if this whole room was dark, would you like to read if if we'd cover the light like that? 
No. Why not? Because there's other stuff that's hiding much of the light, right? Because this is dirty. It's not clean. Now, so what, 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 how about, how about this? Are we okay now? Okay. Now I've shown you three different covers. Every person's life is a light. But all of our lives are covered with something. You can either have this, you can have this, or you can have this. If you want to be, if you want the true light to be seen, you have to have this, right? If you want uh, some light to be seen, but real, not the real light, you'll have this. And if you don't want light to be seen, which doesn't make sense because it will be seen somehow, you have this. Light. We all have light and we all reveal light in some way. Now, if we are Christians, then the light we have is that of Jesus. And so, I think many of you children probably and the adults can help me with this. I think in Sunday school they were already seeing this little light of mine, right? We sang that. You sang that one in Sunday school? How about I think some, many of you will know, Jesus bids us shine with a clear, pure light. You know that one, don't you? Let's try. Jesus bids us shine with a clear, pure light. Like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, we must shine. You in your small corner, and I in mine. Okay. So we need to be a clear, shining light. In First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 11 and verse 12 this morning. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The Apostle Peter has been addressing these suffering Christians and he's been talking earlier in this chapter about this foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus being the cornerstone, and we are like lively stones that are built upon this cornerstone. 
The cornerstone is a blessing to some and an offense to others. But if we are building on the cornerstone of, of him, we are lively stones. And then he says in verse 9 and verse 10, he says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people for the purpose of showing forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who were at one time not a people of mercy, not even a people, but now you have both are a people of God and the ones who have experienced mercy. Now Paul goes, or Peter goes, and he starts says, okay, now what does that look like when people are lively stones built on the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, when people are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, special people, what do these people look like? What do they act like? What kind of cover do they have over their life? And in the next verses, he addresses how this works out in relationships. This morning we're going to look at the Gentiles, or just people of the world. Society around us. He also goes on in how we relate, how does this look like when we relate to the governing authorities? How does this look like in the servant-master relationship? What does this look like in the husband-wife situation? Especially if the husband is an unbeliever. What does this look like when you're being persecuted for righteousness sake? What does this look like? It's interesting that underlying all of what it looks like, there's a word that is not in our text this morning, but repeatedly comes up in some of the other situations, and that is the word of submission, the word of, of, of yieldedness to God. A reverence for God with a confidence in Him, which leads to responsible living. Let's look at these verses just a little bit. He starts out with dearly beloved. And this is not a pastor speaking to his congregation and he just says, you know, I love you. That's, that's not what Peter's saying here. What Peter's actually saying here, I want you to remember that you are loved of God. This phrase, dearly beloved, is a reminder that these people are being loved by God. If you'd read it in the original. This is God's love in action. And with God's love guiding you, controlling you, directing you because of who you are. Dearly beloved, I beg you, I urge you. As pilgrims, as strangers and pilgrims. He doesn't say, become this. He says, this is who you are. If you're a royal priesthood, a, a chosen generation, a holy nation, you're a stranger and a pilgrim. 
You can't have part of this package. If you're going to be of a peculiar, special people, holy nation, and so on, you're going to be a stranger and pilgrim. It's all part of who you must be. You can't have some of it. Now, what's a stranger? A stranger is a sojourner. A stranger is someone who doesn't have any right or legal status in a location. He's a foreigner. He's a visitor. He's a neighbor because he's around us here. But he does not have a legal status to be here permanently. He is not one of us. He's a sojourner. That's what Christians are like. Strangers. We're in this world. Not of it. We may be Around here, but we're not at home. A pilgrim is someone who's a wanderer. He doesn't really have a permanent home. Somebody recently asked me, I guess I've been doing a fair bit of travel the last number of months in Europe and Africa and of course in America. Somebody asked me, what's your address? He says, it's a suitcase. It's about, that's what it feels like these days. Really, as I'm thinking about that, that really is the, that should be the address of every believer. In a way. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a residence anywhere. who were pilgrims. Like Abraham, the Bible says, what I find so interesting about Abraham, he wandered throughout all of, uh, of that, of the land that God promised him, and he never had a home. <coughs> Lived in tents the whole time. Yet, God promised him, this, 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 this belongs to you. And yet there was no settled place. He wasn't there. He wasn't at home. This describes the Christian's position in our world. We live among the unsaved. We live alongside them. Yet we're strangers. We're sojourners. We're foreigners. We're pilgrims. We're not like them. I, that's the price that a Christian pays for being a special person of the royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people, chosen generation, building on the Christ the cornerstone. That's part of it. You're, you're at settled there, but you're an alien here. It's not my country, 
It's not my values. Not my hope. There's a degree of detachment and a declaration of difference. And dear ones, we better make sure that we are that way in heart. That there's a degree of detachment and that our lives are a declaration of difference. That's going to lead to misunderstanding. That's going to lead so that others wonder about us. How do pilgrims and strangers act? Well, we've already talked a little bit. They don't regard earth as their home. I know we sing the song sometimes. I'm just a wander. I'm just a pilgrim here. Heaven is my home. Yeah, I, I, it's best that we don't just sing that when there's a funeral. That's not the only time that I need that reminder. Strangers and pilgrims don't seek permanent possessions and positions. In fact, we store up things in heaven, not on earth. Those things that are, we seek those things that are permanent and those things are not here. We don't seek attachments that are going to hinder our journey going home. Pilgrims are strangers are the people who travel light. I usually take far too much stuff along when I go anywhere. Because I really don't care to have other people do my laundry when I'm somewhere else. I think most of us, as we travel through life, carry too much stuff, don't we? Pilgrims tend to travel light. Pilgrim and a stranger here has thoughts of home, of where it really is. You think about their home. And so they say no to those things that move them away from their permanent goal. And that's why Peter addresses and says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as pilgrims and strangers. And he says, do this. Abstain. Hold back. Now when you abstain, that doesn't mean that you just once in a while not participate. When you abstain, you refrain. An abstainer doesn't take a drink occasionally. That's not an abstainer. An abstainer says, no. It's not part of me. And Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, that word fleshly lust, it's more than just immoral kind of Thoughts and behaviors. It includes that. What is meant by fleshly lusts here is, is those things that a person does naturally, normally, before he's born again or she. 
Those that are part of the old life, of the old man, whatever that is, whatever conduct, whatever thought, whatever behavior, whatever attitude, that's part of the old life. That which is part of the human nature that's fallen away from God. Those cravings, those desires that come from there. Those selfish, indulgent, vicious, natural appetites. And not just the vile ones, even those that look pretty refined but are not godly. All of those. And Peter says, abstain from them. Have a negative reason. Stay away. Be self-disciplined about this. Stay away from those things. Separate yourself from them. Be Have a barrier between you and them. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Because they war against the soul. They carry a military campaign against your soul. In Galatians 5.17, it says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. You cannot do the things that you would. There's those things that are flesh and those things that are spirit. And if we are of the dearly beloved, the pilgrims and strangers, the chosen generation and all, if we are part of that group, then we're of the spirit. We're not of the flesh. And so we must abstain from those things because they create a war. They create a battle. And of course we know that that battles always bring wreckage, carnage, destruction, and loss. If you don't think so, I'll take you to Liberia and I'll show you what it's like even years after the battle is already done. There's still loss. There's still hurt. There's still damage. So giving in, not abstaining, Dabbling in these things help incite a war against your soul. Now, the believer, by becoming a Christian, has a broken sin nature, but that doesn't mean that there is no sin nature left. There's still somewhat of a downward pull. There's still perils that beset the believer after conversion. The flesh is still there. Somehow that doesn't get born again. Sure would be nice. And so flesh, flesh must always be kept servant. Never allow it to be master. And so self, self-discipline, this abstinence, abstinence is something that is a conscious effort in my life of being able to say no and carry through. It's a deliberate abstinence. 
and that will decrease the foothold or the taking off ground of lust and sinful desires being in my life. We sometimes sing that song, uh, uh, one phrase at least, and it says, Each victory will help you, some other to win. And so, as God's people, strangers and pilgrims, abstain. Stay away. There are some places we just don't go. There are some things we just do not participate in. There are some things we just say no to. We don't go near. Because of what they are. Because they create a war. They stir a war within us. Stay away. So there's a negativeness here. <coughs> but then in verse 12, there is a positiveness as well. Abstain is in the negative in verse 11. Verse 12, he says, having your conversation, holding up a manner of life that is honest. The word honest, I understand, is more than just being truthful. It is a. It, it means that which is uh, strikes the eye, that which is genuine, which causes attention, which is the way it really is, which is that profession which is in agreement with one's walk. It's a testimony that is in conformity with who you say you are. The real you. It is that which people say, this matches what you say. What you say matches who you are. These two things agree. There's not a surprise between your profession and your conversation, your, your walk of life. There's, there's no, there's no, dichotomy there. There's no difference there. He says, having your conversation, your manner of life, your walk of life being genuine. Among the Gentiles, among those that are unbelievers, an outward testimony that is true. Whereas, they speak evil against you. As evildoers. They may criticize you. They speak down about you. They defame you. They may do that. But. They see your good works. And they know that what they are saying. And what you are doing. That does not match. You know the separated life. The life of being chosen, royal, holy, peculiar, separated, stranger, pilgrim. Uh, that causes a lot of people to be very uncomfortable. 
It shouldn't cause us to be uncomfortable. But it, it, it causes people watching the, the genuine Christian to be uncomfortable. They, after a while, they, they don't think that's that quaint. Why? Because, because they know that where it, it convicts them. It exposes who they are. And it makes them miserable. I do believe that a lot, that a lot of persecution that happens, a lot of, of that comes actually from people who in their own hearts know that the ones they're persecuted have something more right than what they do. Very often. There are those who are convinced that the Christian is wrong. But there are many of them who down deep would give the Christian credit but they dare not because it shows up in their own life. And so they have to stand against it in order to hold up what they what they prefer to be. They don't like to be they don't like to be exposed. Early Christians New Testament time were were accused of all kinds of things. They were accused of cannibalism because at communion supposedly they ate flesh and blood. They were accused of immorality because they had what they call love feasts. They were accused of damaging the trade because they didn't, uh, they, they, they spoke against the, the silversmiths, idolatrous uh, work at Ephesus. They were accused of tampering with family relationships because when people became Christians then there was different relating within the family. They were accused of tampering with the whole master-slave relationship when slaves became Christians because Christians gave all people dignity, which Roman citizenship didn't. You had different classes. They were being accused of disloyalty to Caesar because they would refuse to throw the pinch of incense on the altar and declaring Caesar as Lord. That's what happened to early Christians. I'd like to ask us, what are we accused of? Are we... uh, Accused of being intolerant about the divorce-remarriage situation? I hope so. Are we accused of being intolerant uh, and not understanding about the whole transgender situation? I hope so. Are we accused of being Totally disinterested in what goes on around society because we don't uh, participate in politics? I hope so.
Would these people really feel comfortable if we were involved in these things? Intolerant to them? Not really. Why? Because we would be covering the light, at least for a while, the light that we had would die. Peter goes and he says, Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may even say, You are intolerant. You are unloving. They may by your good works. So that doesn't mean that these people don't watch. That they don't observe. They may disagree with you. But they will closely examine you. I guess when a person becomes a Christian, the person needs to understand that his life is under scrutiny. That's part of the price that the Christian pays. Basically, the Christian declares, I'm, it's okay to watch me. It's okay to watch I'm not saying that we will live perfect lives, flawless. Because we are still in the body. But we, we allow, we don't hide our life. And so our Christian conduct would be such that a close examination by the enemies would convince them, would lead them to the conviction that the Christian is right. That the accusations that are being made against them are biased, they are angled, they are not they are not true. And we have and all we do is we absorb the slander. And Peter says they may by your good works, not by your good declarations. Not by your whatever loud pronouncements. No. Some things are best silenced by doing right. Saying nothing. I'm not saying we should never say anything. But by your good works, their mouths will be closed. And they will glorify God. Many false charges are best answered, not by words, but by right deeds. Just like in Matthew chapter 5, where we started out <clears throat> earlier. Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. You don't light a candle and put it under a bushel on a candlestick. And then Jesus says, let your light so shine. I've never heard a loud light yet. But I've seen light. Let it shine. That they may see your good works and glorify your God which is in heaven. It's the same thing that Peter's saying here. As they see your good works, they will that glorify God. 
Does that mean that they will become Christians? That's, that's not what Peter is saying. But they will recognize, they will give honor, they will give credit, they will acknowledge God. So every Christian is basically a billboard Either it's a good and accurate one or it's a poor one. As I travel, I see a lot of billboards. In fact, I've been blessed. Repeatedly I see, in different locations I travel, I, I see those that are put up by, by camp. They're always a blessing. Every time. Yes! I'm not saying that, that those are the only good ones. But there's there are many that are that are downright poor your life and mine is a billboard either it's going to bring glory to God or it won't it's going to say something it'll be true and accurate and good or it's going to be poor it'll be either smudged glass or it's going to be clear Ours better be clear because for for many people in the world, the, the Christian's life is the only truth that people will experience. They won't read it. Sadly, there's more and more people growing up in this world that, that do not know godly values and godly truths. The only way they will experience them and find out about them is by watching the Christian's life. We must define God's values to the world. Because if the world doesn't see Christian goodness in us, where will they find it? They will have no knowledge. A story that I read. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council of Buffalo Creek, New York. To hear a presentation of the, Christ, of the Christian message by a missionary. After the sermon, the response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. And among other things, this is what the chief said. Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and to serve the Great Spirit. If there is only one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why don't all agree as you all read the same book? Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place as well. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find that it does them good, makes them honest, less disposed to cheat on us, we will then consider again what you have said. Peter says that they will behold our good works and then glorify God in the day of visitation. When is the day of visitation? It's called the day of looking upon. Yes, we do believe at the end of time there will be a day of visitation. But really... The day, a day of visitation is any time where God 
where, where something happens that there's a special drawing near to God, of God to deal with men, either judgment or mercy. It can be the final day of judgment, when all people will give God glory. But it can also be any other occasion when God brings matters to a crisis to a point where people recognize God is at work. God is doing something. It may likely mean here the day that God will deal with the accusers to bring them to repentance and faith. Or at least to recognition of truth. It may be that. And so, there will be a time, there will be, when all men will recognize God. And in the day of visitation, are those people going to say, recognize God by saying the right things about you and me? That they may even now be, mis be, be not saved. It is true that good works convict people of sin, others of sin. They're used by God to convict sinners. That is true. But at the same time, good works will one day bring to rec bring God the recognition even by those who now use those good works against us. In the end, all will, all will glorify God. And so as we close this morning, just like to recap that there are three reasons why the Christian, why the person that is a chosen, royal, holy, peculiar, pilgrim, and stranger should have a good conduct. Why? It's because he is a pilgrim and a stranger. It's not who we become. It's who we are. It's just part of being that. Secondly, it's for our own spiritual well-being. <clears throat> we abstain because from, from the evil because that is a war against our soul. Because there is a spiritual danger to us if we don't. And thirdly, because it does influence others toward God and God gets the glory. In order for verse 11, for verse 12 to happen, that people will glorify God, verse 11 must happen. We must abstain as pilgrims and strangers. It's part of it. It may involve suffering. It may involve misunderstanding. It may involve criticism. But as long as we keep a light that only has a clear jar above it, not one that's got a murky one or one that is totally covered. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, abstain, having, having an honest conversation.